Shit Platypus Says, episode 27. confession to make okay <laughs> so yesterday i woke up and i realized that i had um had a dream about john rothman what kind of dream it, it, it kind of surprised me because it was it was a little bit of a sexy dream i basically had a wet dream about john rothman <laughs> <laughs> it's no wonder i've been reading all these headlines about like sex with john rothman <laughs> i guess that's what happens <laughs> I woke up and I was like, oh, wow, that's what happens when you read all these crazy stories. (laughs) Yeah. Did you feel like he was abusing his power? Oh, most certainly not. (laughs) 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 Well, so John Raffman, who, uh, full disclosure, Lori and I went to school with John, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. John has been, um, he's an artist. I should say, for those of you who don't know, and he's been the uh, target of a campaign to deplatform him, sort of cancel John Raffman campaign as a result of allegations online by women claiming that while what they did was consensual, um, that they felt that there was an abuse of power, that there was predatory behavior on his end. So this has been recounted on a Surviving the Art World Instagram account. And then really fast after that, uh, very quickly picked up by major institutions. He had a whole bunch of solo shows coming up and they've been canceled, including a show that had just opened in Montreal, in the Mac Montreal, I believe. Uh, A big solo show that basically was closed down until further notice. And I think it only had been open like for a week or two because it opened like in July. And And just just to just to clarify on the institutions front, because this is what I found a bit crazy when we're talking about these major museums, major galleries, they're taking their cues essentially from the Instagram account. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Just to clarify what's going on here. There's no police reports. No, there's just been word of mouth Instagram. For full disclosure, I don't know John Rathman. Um, and even one of, one of the exposés on the account is not even from like a physical experience, but is from a, an exchange on Facebook Messenger, I think, that is then in retrospect, she deems as predatory since these other allegations is, have come out. And it should be clear that the allegations are not allegations of, of rape, but just um, allegations that kind of absolve of all of the women's autonomy and they're about not having a good sexual encounter or whatever. In particular, I guess yeah. it's like there is uh, this assumption that he was somehow aggressive, right? Um, and, you know, from my perspective, it's the it's like, oh, somehow like 
sexual assertiveness of his behavior, which came with completely consensual flirtation,、mm. and then somehow being like, "Oh, he pushed me up against the wall and kissed me." Well, the the allegations kind of start out as being like, "Oh, I was kind of interested. I kind of wanted to have a chat about video art and about the way he makes art and etc. etc." Maybe like furthering their careers or like deepening their engagement、mm. within、yeah. the art world, which would be、mm. for the betterment of. Um, themselves, and since it turned out that like maybe there wasn't so much conversation or whatever, but there, but there was sex, they're unhappy. This is the worst part of it. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't really have any problem with women using their sexuality instrumentally、uh, to open up opportunities.、Yeah. You know, I live in the real world, so I don't want to demean these women being like, oh, these are just art groupies, da da da. But come on, let's be real about it.、Uh, you have agency. You you flirt. You you use what you got to make connections. And I just felt like you read these Instagram accounts, and you're like, so you were around John for a long time. These were these were not just like singular encounters. You were part of his networks. You were around. You were talking to him about the art. I think one of them says at the end, one of the first posts, it's like at the end says, well, I really thought that he was going to help me out. Uh, with some of these、uh, connections that I needed to make, and then he didn't.、And、I'm like, okay, so are these people just sour? And then this is the way they go about being sour, just turning him into some kind of aggressor because they didn't get what they wanted from it. And it does just take away all of the agency in female sexuality. I just think that it's a, it's a terrible predicament. No, no, but like, what does it mean that we have? Reached today to this point that like you know I've read these encounters I'm not denying that any of these encounters like like I'm you know I believe quote unquote these women's stories but when I read the stories I'm like what 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 exactly is the problem here? right and like it's sorry because he was promiscuous and he was sleeping with other people in the same year. <laughs> <laughs> There's a there's a lot of pressure from society about how you should interpret your sexual experiences or whatever. I think that in the past, like this would have been just like, oh, this dude's a little bit of a slut, like he's just kind of a hoe, but he's you know he's having a good time. And now you know, like after I guess Me Too, like calling anyone a slut has become derogatory and whatever. Like it used to have、yeah. a little edge, you know, like. Maybe you were a point in your life when you felt like hoeing around a bit. Who knows what's going on with you? It's not really my business. But the idea that now it, it's turned into predatory behavior, and I just find like the argument to be very incoherent.、Um, you know, so there's this art critic. I actually don't know how to say this man's name.、Um, Ceylon Twardy, maybe. And yeah, this like Montreal art critic who apparently had written a lot of good things about John's work had like reviewed his work in the past, and clearly felt like he was going to become a target, and so disassociated himself from John by writing about his work and saying that what I've realized now is that all of John's work shows this predatory,、uh, male-centered. Uh, abusive perspective. The signs that John is a creep. Yeah, is in the work. Yeah, it's all in the art. I'm just coming on Facebook to let you know that. Yeah, I've I've come around and I can see the error of my ways, and、uh, yeah, I'm on the right side of history essentially. Of course. <laughs> Uh, there's no separation between the artist and the artwork, and it completely diminishes. Yeah, and like he actually also like doesn't really say much. He just 
It suggests that it's in the work, right? Because John Ruffin's work, which we haven't said, right? It's part of this quote-unquote post-internet generation. And a lot of John Ruffin's work is really about sort of online culture and dark web and experiences that people have in this sort of millennial generation of like online little holes and nooks that people can spend hours and hours and hours in and like what kind of subjectivity is created there and in fact in a very critical and ambivalent way throughout his works and so but then somehow because that's become the subject of John Raffman's art like that it's presence that already represents John as some sort of internet freak it's very serious for the repercussions of art um, production that this kind of like moral policing and the effect on on cultural production um, is very depressing no, and then museums, which is where we started, right? Like, Pam, like, yeah, the hair show, right? These top institutions are taking their cues from an Instagram account. What is happening? This is the batshit crazy. Like, what? Like, these are major yeah. leaders in culture. And I guess there's no spine. I guess, like, people just don't want to be at risk of being canceled. And so the mob and their threat of revenge has taken over. And you see these major institutions, you know, I I spoke to a friend of mine and she was like, yeah, I mean, everyone's just shaking in their boots, you know, none of their board members want to be the target of another Me Too campaign. They don't want to they don't want to be under that kind of heat. So everyone's like, hands off. Everybody's trying to hold on to their jobs in the middle of in this moment of like crisis, because we have to acknowledge, yes, coronavirus. All the protests that have happened recently, everything is very, very volatile and people's jobs are uncertain and it just makes it more precarious for people and institutions and museums are no longer institutions that actually can preserve art, right? Can't defend it as like something separate. That's just like not even a question, right? Like museums have lost their right to exist. What's your job, right? Are you there to frame artworks but now that doesn't really matter and it makes no sense the idea of these accusations i guess is that personal is political and that these people coming forward will make change on society or whatever um and if you look back to like the the crazies in the late 60s like the weather underground having orgies um in vans like um laughing down the freeway um and then and uh, and then today, not to like celebrate that, but today it becomes this uh, this like radical anti-sex, um, but yes. it's still in a way inheriting like this '60s ideology of the personal being political, this kind of thing. You know, the weathermen also blew up a Rodin in Cleveland. That was one of their actions. They blew up the Thinker yeah. because, according to them, you know, like Enlightenment culture was a cancer in society. And I think that in some respects, while it doesn't inherit that kind of free love bent, it does inherit a kind of deep hatred for enlightenment ideals, freedom, open exchange of ideas, art. And that hatred has been turned, has been fetishized into some kind of progressive force. You know, I mean, as it's probably expected from our listeners, um, none of this has anything to do with the left. Yeah. And... And it's deeply conservative and against art. It's anti-art and anti-sex. And, you know, it's some kind of revenge fantasy. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> Sad. 
all artists being thrown under the bus in the name of somehow bringing people to justice, which obviously is not what's happening either. Uh, and, you know, it's like the new form of art criticism and it's the new form of justice, right? It's like, and it is, in that sense, it is the complete collapse of art and politics, of both. Yeah, it's the moral, the moral police gets to choose who's going to get the jobs. You know, that's what's going on here. And, and society has become this sort of tribal warfare over job opportunities. You know, it's like we should have an exchange of free labor and yet within our society, now the tribes are going to be fighting for who are the ones that are morally righteous and those are the people that get the jobs. Gangs and rackets. Yeah. It's new gangs and rackets fighting each other for the little bit of piece of the pie that they can get by any means necessary. And this is the problem of capitalism that's being completely like, right? This is a real form of discontent that is not seen as a problem of capitalism, it's seen as a problem of individuals and their sexual behaviors. Yeah. Hello, hi, this is Pamela Nogales, and this is another installment of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. On today's episode, we talked to two of the organizers of our recent panel on police brutality and the left, featuring Andrea Pritchett from Berkeley Cop Watch, Conrad Cartmel from the Democratic Socialist of America, Larry Holmes from the Workers' World Party, and Gerald Smith a former member of the Black Panther Party and the Spartacist League, and current member of the Oscar Grant Committee. We'll listen to some clips from the panel recordings and give our impressions of the conversation. The link to the full recording of the panel is available in the episode description. In the last segment, my co-host Sophia Freeman and I talk with Joshua Citarella, an artist and cultural thinker whose books Politogram and The Post Left from 2018 and his most recent book, 20 Interviews, offer an in-depth survey of young political spaces online. We sit down with Joshua to discuss what motivates his work and what, if any, is his critique of our own millennial generation. That's it. Stay tuned. of your youth is unemployed what the hell do you have to lose we'll put a life on the other side of america mommy at work daddy he dead nigga we home stomach growling like an mg going to bed we home uzi on me all my friends are dead nigga we home we'll put a life on the other side of america 
I always dreamed too of being like on like CNN and being able to express myself and 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 speak for like Do the it. voiceless young men of, of America. The first step I would say I grew up in America in a ruthless neighborhood where we are not protected by police. Uh, we grow up in ruthless environments. We grow up around murder. You see murder. You see seven people die a week. I think you would probably carry a gun yourself. Would you? Uh, yeah, I probably would. We have with us Will Lushbaugh out of San Francisco State, California, and Ethan Kaimana, who I believe we recruited in Philadelphia. Is that right, Ethan? Yes. And both of these guys were part of the committee for putting together a panel on police brutality, which just happened on the 11th of July. Thank you for joining us. Hi, guys. Hello there. Hi. Happy to be here. So maybe you could outline for us how the topic for the panel came about, what those discussions were, and and why this choice of panelists in the curation. I mean, this panel is obviously a reaction to the George Floyd protests. I mean, it's in the prompts. So at first it was kind of like, we thought we just had to make a panel responding to this event, but also, you know, sort of take a step back and also look at, like, what is the role of the state from, like, a socialist or Marxist perspective, too? Because that's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just about police brutality. It's also about, you know, capitalism and the role that the state plays. And we were thinking of, like, you know, which type of speakers to get. We wanted to have a generational mix. We wanted to get sort of the conversation with the... Uh, older activists and then the younger DSA members and also more so like the liberal activists too which is why we thought to include Andrea Pritchett from Berkeley Cop Watch because what I find interesting about her is that her sort of activist experience predates Black Lives Matter several decades she's been doing you know I think anti-police brutality activism for like over over 20 years in Berkeley and uh, she also like doesn't necessarily have ties to like socialist organizations, so her goals are different than like a leftist. But at the same time, she's had many leftists participate in her organization, and one of those is Gerald Smith, who we also have on the panel. And his his sort of history is a little different, where he's had more of a long sectarian left political history, starting with the Black Panthers, then the Sparsist League, then the International Bolshevik Tendency, and now is sort of in a, in a spot where he's uh, just doing anti-police brutality activism. So those are the two people that I, I invited to the panel, and th- those are some, some of the reasons and, you know, that I thought they'd be good for them. So there's a relationship established between Andrea and Gerald. She's worked with him. I mean, I, I don't know if it's right to say, but it almost seems like he's kind of a mentor figure to her. And and then there are the other two, Larry and Conrad. I know Conrad through. He regularly attends some of the uh, the reading the Kautsky reading groups for the West Coast Platypus. I'm uh, located in San Diego right now, so I've been attending like a lot of West Coast meetings uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that I find really interesting about him, I guess that I've like sort of found interesting since I got to know him, is that despite being um, you know, a millennial DSA activist, he still has sort of a tendency uh, towards like inward perspective, um, maybe sort of a less typical, he's like a member of DSA class unity, which is sort of the anti-id poll 
mm-hmm. group that was set up there. Identity politics. Right, yeah. So he's a little bit of a contrarian, which sort of set up an unusual dynamic between maybe an older, more idealistic group, well, idealistic in a sense, but not necessarily, and someone who's you know already been soured by the experiences in the Birdie campaign, DSA, etc. That's sort of floating in a loose space uh, ideologically. So that set up like a really good contrast. And uh, he's, he's young. He's, I'm pretty sure he's in grad school. I'm not sure. He is definitely a millennial. I thought that the contrast was funny because you had these three new lefters, I think, all of them, and then the millennial. And the, the new lefters were the ones that are like, oh, this is the radical situation. Well, Larry says that he was like, these are radical protests. The problem is that there's not like class consciousness, but whether they know it or not, sociologically, they're the working class. Um, and then he was like reflecting back on his moment in the 60s. And he was like, well, they weren't really what the student, the radical students weren't really working class because they were rich or whatever. Whereas today, these millennials, they because they're living is precarious makes them more revolutionary and as if that's marxism but yeah so there there was this generational cross-section that had had funny relationships the fourth panelist so larry that you just brought up he he's part of the workers world party and they're a split from the socialist workers party so trotskyist organization but they're they're more open sort of third world revolution and i think defended the chinese revolution but I, I tend to forget that they are Trotskyists because they do sound quite different than, than the Spartacist League, which, which has been my introduction to American Trotskyism in my lifetime. Okay, so we have an intergenerational conversation, the three new leftists and then Conrad, the DSA or millennial. And, and then we have these different traditions represented, these kind of splits from the Trotskyist tradition pr- represented by Larry and by Gerald, and then Andrea, who, as Will put it, is a kind of liberal activist who's been in the field for 20 plus years. Community organizing as well was, was her thing, especially in, in, in the 90s right. um, with uh, like Clinton's, under Clinton, this big like a movement of incarceration, which is maybe different to now, but yeah. I was struck at how intensely you could tell that Andrea through her body language was like listen we've tried to do the community building we've developed trust and we just hit a limit right and and we're doing the work on the ground we're doing the work on the ground and somehow though the police keeps on um, reforming itself and it and and she sees it she's like and it's going to happen again and it's not going to be to the benefit of these communities uh, she talks about the digitization of police authority, you know, things like what's happening in China when you're on lists, et cetera. And, um, and, and she's like, this could also be an outcome of the current movement. Yeah, that, that part was interesting because she was like, policing doesn't have to be brutal. Like there doesn't have to be brutality and it could still be like even more progressive, you know, freezing bank accounts or something is like yeah. a potential example of that. One thing that I found interesting about her specifically on that issue is at the same time that she's clearly expressing worry about the growing strength of the police. She expresses, um, she says something along the lines of like, I've been sympathetic towards revolutionary organizations before, but the problem is, is that, you know, we never understand how to get there. She's, you know, she says there's like, you know, there's basically no practicality of the work being done. Like we need to build coalitions, et cetera, et cetera. 
but there's like no work being done there. It's just sort of outward fluff. So it's it's like she's hitting a wall with the work that she can do, you know, as a liberal activist. Uh, and at the same time, you know, is it's recognizing that, but also through that is recognizing, you know, one of the main core issues with the left today, you know, being trying to work towards these overarching goals, revolution, right, through through basically like a, a still an activist perspective, but also not really having any ground on what that would mean because it's, you know, sort of a intractable position. So, you know, you're looking from the outside in at the left, you sort of see a bunch of idealist, workless groups that espouse things that don't really have anything to back that up on, you know, the sort of internetization of the left. She, she also said at one point, um, which struck me, if we don't want the police, we have to account for community safety. And then she kind of said, oh, we need the police straight after saying this. And to go back to Pam's point she was raising earlier about Andrea's like, activism, community organising, it seemed like today she just sees that we just need the solution just being more of that rather than like pushing for small structural changes. We need to like really push hard or something. I don't know if I'm misrepresenting her. When Ephraim really pushed back, Ephraim was the moderator um, and he had a very active moderation, which I thought actually helped the conversation. And he said, okay, so what's going to happen now with this organizing? You were there under Clinton. What, what happened? And what do you need for it not to reach that limit? And she, she sort of said towards the end of the panel, like, look, I know you're talking about the party. I know you're talking about this organization, but, but it's not there. You know, I, I have to say I have a frustration. You know, I, I, I have not participated in a particular uh, revolutionary party because so rarely do I hear the, the talk of the incremental plan of how we get there. It's, a lot of people say what we need is a coalition or what we need is, is this organization. And I'm, I just don't understand why it doesn't exist at this point, you know, why it's not there. And, and so I'm hopeful that the silver lining to the horror that we're about to undergo in the coming year, I believe, related to the uncontrolled pandemic and the devastating economic situation is that people will be, I think, much more ready to hear that. I guess, are we ready to work with people? I feel like we, we wait for socialists to be ready-made, to plug into this organization in the sky, and it's a rough material. We are a rough material. And I think the, the phrase that she kept using was bridging the gap. Um, bridging the gap between the community organizing and the sort of larger political goals. And I think that at one point on the panel, and it became slightly frustrating, and I think that you could capture it in, in Stefan, one of our members who asked the question, who said, you know, if everybody recognizes that there's a need for class analysis and the party, why isn't it there? And Andrea, out of all of them, was the one that was most sincere in her answer, which was like, I don't know, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not, I don't understand. And she, she sort of threw it back to the panel because I thought that on that note, you know, neither Larry nor Gerald had the answer. I'm not sure I know anyone who does have like an answer to that question, you know? No, absolutely not. <laughs> so, so, and it actually, I think that was a good part of the panel that you're bringing up because it, it kind of highlights how like, this is, this is kind of like, this is something that comes up in like almost every panel, right? Yeah. 
and there's no clear-cut answer to it and it kind of lets people recognize their own the panelists their own confusion you know maybe we could talk about so we talked about larry andrea and gerald um conrad's mm-hmm. kind of ambivalence about the the party question he recognizes a need for more durable organizations to bridge the gaps between discontents and these questions of like immediate demands for justice or something. A lot of what he's talking about through his critique is sort of he brushes against, you know, we need a, a working class organization. We need some sort of, you know, we need a party, essentially, but he doesn't really elaborate on it. So his you know, he, his critique, he takes in, you know, he cites Adorno, he takes in, uh, obviously, a, a more self-critical and outwardly critical view of the left. But at the same time, his uncertainty sort of shows through. And, like, remember, he's still, like, he's still a member of the DSA. He's still a DSA activist. He knows what is wrong or has a general sense of what's wrong, but isn't really sure how to approach that. I read Conrad as saying... The DSA is an organization, and within the organization, there's a conflict. And, mm. and one of the conflicts is that there is a, an influential faction that stresses that the left should be focused on recruiting progressives, and that this is a mistake, and that these are not the people that are going to build the Party for Socialism. That's my most generous reading I think of what Conrad was saying, that he was saying he, he is a member of an organization wherein he sees an internal struggle. And he was trying to give us an insight into that sort of factional struggle. Within DSA, there have been varied strategies for engaging with the protests. Of these, there are probably two dominant schools of thought. One holds that the role of DSA is to go into the protests to earn the trust of the activists that are participating in them and thus draw them into the organization where they can be turned into socialists. The other holds that it would be presumptive for DSA to try to exert influence over the events given the organization's racial composition. This camp generally holds that the protests represent an opportunity to take on leaders from racial minority backgrounds, particularly those who are female or in a minority gender or sexual orientation. The problem with the second strategy is obvious. It completely concedes the socialist critique in an attempt to ingratiate the organization to social justice leaders who may lack a democratic constituency or socialist analysis. The problems with the first strategy are a bit more subtle. The first is purely practical. Are protests the right place to recruit people to socialism? Are committed progressive activists and their admirers more amenable to our outlook than others? The answer to these questions is unclear. But the bigger issue is that the people who want to use these protests to recruit generally accept the premise that the protests themselves are doomed to immediate failure. As a real social movement would need a more structured way of making decisions, keeping people involved, providing education, and exerting authority. Adorno noted in Marginalia Tetherian Praxis that solidarity with a cause whose ineluctable failure is discernible may yield up some exquisite narcissistic gain. In itself, the solidarity is as delusional as the praxis of which one comfortably waits approbation, which most likely will be recanted in the next moment because no sacrifice of intellect is ever enough for the insatiable claims of finanity. It could not be better said. The sacrifice of criticism necessary to take the latest protests to be the basis of the socialist project rather than an infusion of energy into the Democrats and their private sector affiliates is too great to bear. And his insight into the DSA's mistake was that they were going to the protest to like 
recruit people on on race or whatever or minorities to be like leading figures in the DSA. Yeah, I thought that part about um, recruiting on race was interesting, uh, mainly because it like it sort of relates to a point that Gerald made in the panel uh, when he was talking about his like experience in the Oscar Grant Committee and how um, they also represent like white people who are like brutalized by the police. And then he was he was pointing out how their organization got flack from other black people for representing those. Yeah, people. And he and one thing I thought was interesting is like when you make the police brutality thing about race, I think he says something something like it turns white people off. You know? It divides people. Yeah. That relates to like Conrad too. That's like one place where I feel like they were agreeing, you know, even though Gerald was sort of like chastising him the whole time, like in a funny way. But um that that part of We can't like, oh. pretend only about sixteen percent of the population supports the defunding of the police. So let's be real. It's not, you know, it's a problem for us. So what am I saying? I'm saying that you can't reform the police because you cannot reform the capitalist state. It exists for a reason. It is a repressive apparatus that they cannot, the 1% cannot survive without. So as long as they, so what is the state? That's what it is. The courts, the cops, you know, the army, now we can split the army <laughs> later on when, when different situations, but right, we're not gonna split the police. So it, how do we abolish the police? I think we have to be patient and show love towards these young people and explain that abolishing the police, like abolishing uh, the prisons, can own and abolishing borders. This, without explaining that the direction we have to go in is we have to smash the existing state. And in order to do that, it will require a socialist revolution. And in order to carry that out, people think we're in the midst of it now. We are not. This is not a revolutionary situation because we are missing a main ingredient. And that is the Revolutionary Party. We have to have a party of some sort that workers recognize is their party. There's wide agreement on the panel, even with Andrea. She was like, we should have an organization, you know, maybe I'm not the one to do it, but like, why isn't it there? And, and they all had this common agreement, like there should be a party, there should be an organization. And I thought that there wasn't a generational reckoning with the new left. There's Larry and there's Gerald, two people that have built parties they were part of independent organizations that were supposed to organize the working class and we're asking them about the balance sheet so where's the party and their answers i thought were indicative of why platypus has to exist because on the one hand you had larry who's telling us that it's a it's a process it's a long process of building the revolutionary party and that we need to be humble we need to listen to people and on the other hand, you have Gerald, who I think stopped too short when he was talking about conservative reaction, right? He's got his years in the Black Panther Party when COINTELPRO killed Black Panther Party members. As the civil rights movement basically achieved what it could, and that was that was uh, 1965 Voters' Rights Act, from then on, that was it. It started to go down. And the Black Power Movement, with the, with the Black Panthers, we were rising, we were, and they came at us hard. They killed 35 of our members. They, they, they burned down our office. It was very difficult to be a Black Panther after the COINTELPRO program was initiated. We eventually split, and the degeneration of the Black Panthers 
set in. I can go on and on, but don't look at it as a, a like a camera shot. You got to kind of go back and, and watch a moving film of this process. If you understand what I'm trying to convey to you, but understand this, that revolutionary optimism is a real phenomenon. It's something that must be a part of our understanding because without that, you can't have what Larry's talking about, the staying power. All right. And Conrad is the one that says, well, you know, I don't, I don't know about COINTELPRO now, what is stopping us, right? And I think Larry and, and Gerald had their little moment when they were like, well, maybe it's about like bringing the left together, you mm -hmm. know, coalitions, unity, right? The left mm -hmm. unity uh, idea. And I'm not saying that I know better. I'm not trying to say like somehow I have figured it out, but you could feel the absence there of the answer. You were sort of like, what did happen? over the last, you know, 60 some odd years, what's the staying power really about? You're pointing out about like, you know, Gerald's experience with the Black Panthers and why he's focusing on the COINTELPRO thing. Because another reason why he was saying there's like an absence of the Socialist Party, he kept saying sectarianism. I mean, I heard him say the word sectarianism like yeah, several times right. in the panel. And then he was like in the most sectarian organizations, like the Sparsist mm. League and the IBT. So it's sort of like his experience just like, I guess experience in those organizations seems like that's why he thinks like there is no socialist party. It's because of the organizations that he has left. Why don't you go back to the question that overhung the, the whole panel and was pushed by Ephraim, Bonapartism, and why the police exist and what that means and what it means for it to be a historically specific phenomena um, that's not true throughout all of human civilization, right? And then also what that means, what it implies for the task to overcome um, th this phenomena as well. Instead of trying to mold the theater into a movement, the left should strike out on its own and make the case that we know it to be true. The police patrol the discontents of class society. In order for their excesses to be diminished, the discontents must be pacified through other means. In order for their excesses to be eliminated, class society must be brought to a close. Um, so Larry then immediately, he reflects on the police's like slave catchers, reflecting maybe today's sensibility of Black Lives Matter onto the past. Well, uh, the existence and the reason for the existence of the police remains the same. They're, they're a, a, a pillar upon which uh, capitalist rule is sitting on. They're the state. They're the frontline shock troops of the state. And of course, when it comes to black and brown people, they have a very specific history, which you alluded to. Their origins are in chasing freed slaves. Uh, to know that is to know a lot about, about the police. What and, does that tell us about the police? Well, if you don't know that, and you think that the police are your friendly neighbors that are just trying to protect you, then you should study their history, especially its relationship to catching freed slaves, to uh, uh, upholding the system, uh, to upholding white supremacy and everything that's connected to capitalism. And you get a, a different point of view. Uh, we don't need this education, uh, at least uh, to the extent that, believe me, if you, if you look like a couple of us on this panel, you know, wherever you grow up, you grow up, you realize that you, you're afraid of the police. <laughs> they are the enemy. And if you're, if you're lucky enough, 
and intuitive enough, you find out why, and then you find out. The problem is that the millennials have inherited the 60 sensibility, and they've also not um, been able to overcome the deeper problem, and are just regurgitating the failure of the 60s new left. We still don't have a political party for socialism. I think that the fact that we're able to raise those ambiguities uh, illustrates like the importance of platypus. The fact that there are sort of, even in the minority, voices like Conrad who are sort of able to recognize, you know, the position that they're in, you know, they tried, they failed. The fact that we're able to sort of put up a panel like this to encourage self-reflection. I mean, I think this was like an excellent example of that, of, of encouraging, you know, not only on the part of the panelists, but on the part of the audience, like, okay, here's the historical continuity. Mm. What happened? I guess so. And, you know, I hope so, Ethan, like from your mouth to Zeus. But there is a way that history tends to repeat itself on the left. And we see what stay in power does to people. Like they may have insights and then they have to concede to defeat so much that when they speak sometimes is you can't hear the insight because it's so loud with the concessions to defeat. And so Conrad is a singular voice in an organization. And I hope that Platypus could continue to educate people like him within the DSA, within other organizations. But, you know, there's crankiness that can come about if, if that doesn't lead to a sort of transformation or there's a kind of concession to, to the rest of the DSA, which, you know, it's not to beat a dead horse, but who are Democrats? I was trying to allude to this earlier, but Conrad, obviously very critical of the DSA inwardly. But it's purely a critical perspective. There's a we need to, but there's no actually building the party. And where is that grasped? Nobody knows. But you know that Platypus doesn't have a positive program either, that we reflect on the history of the left um, right. through our, our reading group syllabus and our engagements with the left and our hosting of events. Yeah, which I, I guess highlights a lack when considering where the left is today, or I guess regression is the word. Regression is the word. And it was, it's a lack that Conrad himself notes that's missing in the DSA, the intergenerational transfer of, of knowledge, right? How the history of the left comes to play a role and the defeats of the left come to play a role in organizations on the left today. And that's the service that at least Platypus is trying to provide. Yeah. Mama let me sip the 40. For I was just a shorty. Bye guys. Then I started spitting garlic. And they said record me. Man. I feel like this shit was for me. This shit is my story. Man. Yeah. Uh. Jump out the porch. Uh. I got a porch, no take it back. I'm on the block with the killers and hoe in my own, of course. Yeah. I see my mom and dad separate, ain't talking divorce. Said daddy was living by the fire, and he died by the torch. I'm with the AKs is. We like the baby kids. Hey, but daddy, I listen to suckers the same with that Ray Ray D. I'm selling Smithers and HKs, and I just was a great A kid. Ain't on no guy, and we grew up with hitters and did everything they said. Point out the block, we spinning it. Running the spot, we getting it. Give us some work, we flipping it. I'm hitting from Jedi, ain't hitting back. Money for commissary and nobody ain't sending that I'm in my cell like when I get out I'm making a movie, no cinemax Woo, yeah Back home and I'm fresh on bell Phone chirping, it was next to tell Block popping, it was extra cell Big dog, ain't showing remorse I was begging just to catch a cell Same block, we was going to war I was praying I ain't catch a shell
we will link the recording to the panel police brutality and the left in the episode description if you'd like to learn more about the platypus affiliated society go to platypus1917.org that's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org platypus has a monthly newspaper the platypus review which is open to submission on a rolling basis we host coffee breaks reading groups and panel discussions like the one that you've just heard about during quarantine a lot of our activities are online so if you check out platypus1917.org slash virtual you'll see all of the ongoing meetings including reading groups and informal discussions okay now to the interview with joshua citarella We're joined here by Joshua Citarella, who this year published a book called 20 Interviews, a snapshot into young online radical politics from summer 2019 to January 2020. We will include a link to the, the book in the description as well, so you can take a look. So we thought we'd catch up with Joshua and discuss the book and how he became politicised and involved on the left. So Joshua, if you could describe for us how you became and when did you become politicised? Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess, I mean, my origin story for this stuff is I think what most people who come through art school uh, and get educated in that fashion uh, are, are interested in, which is generally that Marxism and critical theory is something that floats around in this diffuse academic atmosphere and is in no way applicable to the real world or your everyday life. Uh, it's something that's written about in essays and things like that and taught in schools. So I mean, I think my um, my interest in these things or in the communities that I've been researching for the past few years really spikes off in the 2016 social media landscape, which begins to open up for me uh, a very different type of inroad to political content and, and begins to feel applicable in a way that it hadn't before and that I begin to see um, young people's hearts and minds, for lack of a better term, shaped by ideas that I had encountered maybe in college and had always considered something that was essentially like a filter through which you interpret the world, but was in no way uh, applicable to uh, politics on the ground. Have you ever participated on the left and in what capacity, like in any kind of organized left or it's coming out of the academy? Yeah, it's, it's really out of the academy. I mean, I think for me, the things that I latched onto early after um, I have a BFA from the School of Visual Arts and Photography, the things that I latched onto um, were things like Mark Fisher and uh, I guess generally coming into the art world around the time of Occupy, a deep dissatisfaction and criticism with the idea of unorganized protest and popular protest in general. So trying to think your way around that equation was, I think, a more appealing solution for me. Think around the equation of participation in mass protest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think maybe one of the earlier things that I would cite as being properly politicized was encountering the work of Alex Galloway, mm. specifically his book, Protocol, uh, How Control Exists After Decentralization, mm -hmm. and trying to understand how the events of the Arab Spring did not become this widespread proletarian revolution, uh, understanding how my life on social media, the images that I was inspired by, and the content that appealed to me um, was not necessarily 
revolutionary in the way that we thought it would be. Perhaps this kind of naive California ideology leveling effect. You seem to have a critique of your own generation of the millennials, an implicit critique that's about a kind of hyper individualism and an absence of the solidarity or communities. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I've said it a few different ways in a few different places, but you know, generally, for people who are not uh, familiar with this research already, I would describe the Gen Z communities on Instagram and uh, TikTok and things of this nature as compared to the Facebook, Instagram generation of millennials. They don't care so much about accumulating a following. Uh, they platform hop and change their usernames frequently. They delete their accounts and start over. And all of those things seem to have this kind of implicit understanding in it that there is actually no hope to become this bootstrapping entrepreneur, accumulate a following that you can later monetize. So I'm reading quite deeply into it. I don't know if every young Gen Z person is going to have that kind of in-depth analysis, but a lot of my peer group and um, role in the art world, or at least discursively, was in that period of the kind of naive optimism of social media being of the, you know, dirty word, quote, quote, post-internet generation. I think the role of that work was to discursively disentangle what kind of Silicon Valley libertarianism was from general liberal progressivism that was, um, you know, touted as being a banner of uh, of progress that the people kind of fell for the propaganda or the self-described benefits of these social media platforms that, uh, you know, Twitter could lay some kind of small claim to a revolutionary project. I guess what revolutions are we talking about? Are you talking about the Arab Spring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we go back to this one thing? This So you, I read the book. It's interesting. I think it makes me think a lot more about your generation and my generation than the Zoomers. Because throughout your voice, like the text, you kind of have a critique of your own generation that's being embedded in the hope and sort of desire that you have by examining the Zoomers. And to be fair, it's a very small subset of a subculture that you're examining. So there's something about your investment in it that I guess I'm curious about because uh, maybe we can go in more detail with your own text. So you talk about like a post-left era. Okay, so you're, you're like giving us like a history of some kinds. Could you talk about how you're placing also yourself in this post-left era? Let me retrace the story for people who are maybe not familiar. The communities that I look into broadly described as politogram, which is this portmanteau of political Instagram. And at the time, the first publication is uh, published. That's October of 2018. I'm watching a political subculture of young people develop. They're roughly ages 12 to 17. And um, of the various kind of popular political identities that exist at the time, they're kind of all over the place. There's every single meme ideology you could think of, but anarcho-primitivism experiences a very steep rise after the 2016 election. So my way of kind of, you know, in a, to some degree, ethnographic approach, I'm not sure what you would call this social media research, but my analysis of that was that this corresponded with a kind of death of optimism for left-leaning young people. Uh, that, you know, not even, you, you couldn't even hope to have uh, 
the, the, the neoliberal Democrats. Instead, it was going to be this kind of steep downward slope, and their solution was to hyperbolically, in this very exaggerated teenage way, uh, wipe the slate clean. So when I describe the post-left era in the book, this is used almost interchangeably between a few different factions that later crystallize and are followed up in the next publication that kind of shows them in their own words in, in a way that the first publication did not. You talk about the election a lot. Mm. So you bring up 2016. I read an, an article that quoted you saying that when the election happened, you felt like artists were all asking themselves, like, now what should we do? Was this project in part part of, like, figuring that out? Was this investigation about your relationship to 2016? Uh, I mean, my own personal relationship to it is, uh, I mean, I, it must be baked in there somewhere because I have my own subjectivity. But I think more broadly, it was, I think we had kind of come a, a long way on the social media landscape of the art world, where generally people would describe programs and things that are now very popular, like Medicare for All as being racist because they didn't uh, confront discrimination at point of care or, or something like that. So, you know, trying to keep in mind where we started from, there is, you know, I think implicit in some of the writing, knowing that I'm publishing this to an art audience that is kind of floundering for a political critique at the moment. I'm trying to nudge them in the correct direction or what I feel is the correct direction by offering this hyperbolic example of what's happening in the Gen Z social media space. So in the beginning of um, your um, the book, there's this despair that 2016 has happened and now there's no more ironic, funny shitposting and stuff has got real. Shit got real. Shit got real. So I guess two questions. What's the revolutionary potential of platforms like Instagram or TikTok or social media? And then also, what's the left? The way of understanding these spaces, like, yes, I think, of course, the events that happen in real world politics, the events that happen in the news cycle do a ton to shape these uh, maybe naive political leanings among young people. They do that with adults, right? <laughs> it happens to everybody. But generally, the way that we would analogize this thing is that there's something called a funnel, which is, is a metaphor used to describe a kind of diffuse messaging over time and across channels that slowly refines a political message and brings people into uh, moving from curious to engaged and tacit supporter to active supporter. So, you know, you could trace this over time and that's been kind of my project in the last few years now is like talking to a guy who was a shit poster on 8chan's lefty poll in 2016 and has now joined a political organization. So, you know, it, it would be incorrect of, a, of us to say that everybody who was into online political shitposting four years ago is now a political radical and actually cares about this stuff or whatever. But there is a, you know, increasingly smaller fraction of these audiences that move between channels, move between communities, and eventually do get funneled into actual projects. So understanding how those pipelines work, I think, is, is clearly going to have some effect in the next few years. Uh, in, in a very big way. So what projects? Because, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to have to level with you, but mm -hmm. I'm interested also in understanding because you said, I, I agree with DSA. I, I'm with AOC. Like, this is where you're coming from. Um, so what, what do you have to offer the Zoomers? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say um, that you guys are actually quite well positioned in all of this because 
the way that people move through these various nodes in the funnel or pipeline network is that they recognize a contradiction or something that cannot be resolved in their current way of thinking or their current community and looking for clarity, trying to close that cognitive gap is actually what moves them down this pipeline or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, platypus, one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to you guys is that there is a very high degree of clarity. You know, that being said, I openly describe myself as a cringe reformist. I'm pretty much on board with the Bhaskar Sankara, like, uh, rapid restoration of social democracy from which you can then try to even engage in a labor struggle to describe what kind of projects people get involved in it's all different things across all different uh, corners of the spectrum so there's people who will just you know they'll go and become an intern at the Mises Institute and then there's people who will join the National Guard and there's people who will become a part of the ICC some of them listen to platypus they have found you through this pipeline um, but it's all different things it just means at the end of this project at the end of this uh, all of this media consumption and turning over ideas in your head Many of them do join something. They do get enlisted and make a political commitment. Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. I feel like there are some specific hopes that you're putting on the Zoomer generation that are coming from a recognition of a limitation of the millennials that you're trying to supersede. Could you like specify what you mean and then like what kind of community you see in the Zoomers, this community building, and maybe flesh that out for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things baked in here. And I'm actually when I'm writing, I'm writing for several audiences at once. And I'm trying to get under the skin of, of each of them to kind of create a, a nudge in what I think is a positive direction. But, you know, I would probably have to say, for example, if you're a 16 year old white dude who's a shit poster who lives in, we'll say the industrialized South uh, in, in an urban center, and you look onto social media and your idea of Marxism is somebody with blue hair at a college campus that is going to a college that you could never dream of affording. Um, those are broadly unpopular things. So I guess generally the, the people that I'm trying to put a wedge into are millennials who went to an art school, are now in media positions, and their idea of, you know, quote, left, whatever that means, is um, generally being incredibly progressive in a media or advertising job. And that seems to be a insufficient critique. And what I'm trying to argue is that they are losing an at-risk demographic by not um, having a deeper political engagement themselves. So I'm writing across a few different demographics to try and nudge each of them in a very specific way. It struck me because we were talking about, we're going to talk about the questionnaires to in the interviews. And so I'm, I have a very straightforward question about it. Are they questions that you've taken from already existing questionnaires? Exactly. Yeah. They're from quizzes like the Political Compass, from Eight Values, from Politiscales and the similar. Yeah. But you've chosen very specific ones to have as the measure of their, I guess, political identity, as you're calling it. Yes, yeah, I've uh, cherry-picked a few kind of more interesting examples. Yeah. Some of them are, you know, more telling than others, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, generally, just one last note before we move off of this kind of political quiz topic. Um, I think it's important to just kind of contextualize these things with essentially the role that these political quizzes on the early side play on social media is something similar to the, you know, what sex in the city character are you? Or what Harry Potter house would you be sorted into? 
you know, and the age demographic, they are undoubtedly seeing those things in their, their feed. So, you know, I, it's not necessarily a really robust political analysis on behalf of these kids, but it offers a pretty quick inroad into some more radical ideas. And that's kind of the, right. you know, I'm trying to show that that, that ramp uh, exists. Um, maybe you could talk a bit about that hopeful quality of it. So like, what's the possibility that you see in the Zoomers? Yeah, about the hopeful quality. Um, it's been a little while since then. Um, generally, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more pessimistic. Maybe you caught me in a bad week. The thing that really pushed me to dive deeper into these communities was, I think, the PTSD of social media of seeing really kind of uh, ridiculous self-parodying takes from my peer group in the Overton window explosion of 2016. And then, you know, in the very short time after that, I'm seeing somebody who is, you know, maybe 15 years old, who is posting that they're doing the David Harvey class, they're doing Reading Capital. Uh, it made me hopeful that potentially all of these bad kind of endless treadmill of social media debates could break in a positive direction that, you know, allowed these algorithms to work towards political education. You praise this autodidactic sort of nature mm. of the Zoomers, right? The thing, they go looking for things and they, they sort of educate themselves. And there's like a question about the, whether or not this is a technical problem, right? That, that it's just about kind of creating the machinery of uh, the creation of the funnel. In terms of the 20th century failure of the left, like in terms of putting, I guess, the platypus sort of agenda here, it's not so much a technical problem that uh, a real challenge to capitalism has emerged, like the possibility for mm. socialism. Um, it has been a, a leadership problem. And I guess um, that's still the case, even with the technologies and capacities to present these mechanisms of influence. I know that you don't have a solution for this, but I think that uh, in the introduction to your questionnaires, uh, the, to the interviews, you you do praise certain uh, kind of communal spirit of the Zoomer left and counterpose it against kind of vanguard idea of the party. You talk about this kind of community uh, building as a kind of counter model to a party. And I guess I, I did ask myself, I was like, so like the party question doesn't make it to the questionnaire. Like what do these kids think about the party? Yeah, yeah. I'm, it, it's interesting that you got that reading from it because I don't, um, you know, having written it quite a while now, I, uh, quite a while ago now, I, I don't feel like that was part of my um, intention. And, and generally, um, mm. they do talk about, you know, quote, quote, the party. I just did an interview with a, a young man who, uh, who said that explicitly. So the ICC is the international communist current and this is an organization which was formed in 1975 in kind of the aftermath of the may 68 generation and it was formed to take on the tasks of the era the tasks of the era were inherited from the old french organization uh, gcf the communist left of france which, you know, you can trace it back through different militants all the way back to the Italian Communist Party. And the, the tasks in 1975, which remain to this day because we haven't seen a revolutionary situation, are basically to theoretically clarify the past and to provide a perspective for the present in 
preparation for a future revolutionary organization such as the party. The ICC does not claim to be the party, and it doesn't claim to be the only nucleus of the party, but the work it does is in preparation for a future party. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, maybe we could disentangle here, like the kind of community aspect that they're like freely sharing PDFs or something like that in a Discord channel from, um, I don't think that they are allergic to a Vanguard party. Mm -hmm. There is actually on one of these quizzes, it's called Left Values. There's an axis, which is, um, but it measures through, uh, I don't know, like kind of populist uprising to uh, Vanguard party or, or something of that nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The last note on this idea of like who's going to educate them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there is anyone. Uh, I think that's that's actually kind of the problem that I'm trying to point out. Mm-hmm. But you know, broadly, the hazard of people who stay in echo chambers and pretty radical circles is that they come up with ideas that make a lot of sense to them and are broadly unpalatable to most everyone else. Mm -hmm. So this is when I think the funnel now that we have this diagrammatic understanding of it, like we literally have quantitative data to some degree on these things. You know, it's not, I think, incorrect assessment to say that somebody like, uh, maybe I won't name (laughs) name any names, but like a comedy Twitch streamer with left-leaning politics is in the long run, in a multi-year view, recruiting for uh, an organization like you guys, perhaps. What do you think is the most important thing to take away from the Fisher education? Because it seems like he's your guy. You guys talk about him on New Models a lot. What should we be learning about the problem of capitalism, capitalist realism? What's, what's the message that, that you want to present? Yeah, I think generally for young people, these are questions of meeting meeting someone where they are. And if their idea of how to make progress, how to do, how to go about revolution or whatnot is part of being, I don't know, I, I think frequently about the essay, um, what if you threw a protest and everyone came? That this is actually very effective for young people and allows them to contextualize you know, they've been out on the street all summer. It hasn't achieved the results that they wanted. And then, you know, maybe they can explore a little bit further. But it is, you're, you're just finding these subtle wedges to insert in someone's way of thinking that nudges them incrementally in the right direction. And you're doing that at various stages uh, to various degrees. So then how has the millennial left contributed to the, the left? Ooh. Uh, one of the things I think I picked it up from you guys is just this question of like, when anyone says the left, you ask what left? I think there's a lot of utility to that. I'm not sure there's a really good answer for it. Maybe the best analogy I can draw is that if you look at whatever that year and a half growth period for the DSA is that goes from 3,000 to almost 60 or 70,000, I think we have only seen the tip of the iceberg on this stuff. I think a lot of people feel like the radical right-wing social media stuff is over. I don't think it's really started yet because you're about to see a generation of young men who are essentially raised in fascist Nazi spaces, like explicit, not implicitly implicit white supremacy, but just explicit, like unhinged uh, violent stuff. There's a generation of young men who are just brought up in those spaces. So we're going to see these things play out in the next four years or so. Um, And I would expect to see incredible oscillations, um, massive influxes to certain organizations, uh, potentially, and maybe that um, DSA influx is an indication of what we could see happen to, I think, a larger degree, though. Mm. Do you mean because of Trump, there's there's like these men who are growing up under, f- f- how did you put it, like fascist spaces? Or, or do you mean something else? Could you just like clarify what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, there's a cumulative effect to seeing, you know, 
100 Nazi images a day, which is not uncommon if you just exist in a lot of these otherwise apolitical uh, gamer spaces. I see. Okay. You know, what the political ramifications of that are, I think we'll find out very soon. So you're talking about the people that are being politicized online, that um, it may be some kind of incubation period for like youth that is right wing. And you find that to be like a serious threat today. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we've seen it fully played out. I think the uh, okay. yeah, they'll be they'll be much younger and they're they're just becoming adults now, you know. Okay. Thanks for talking to us, Josh. I think I wanted to have a conversation with you as a kind of generational reckoning of sorts. We're both of the same generation and there's an assessment of a kind of millennial generation that's part of it that I didn't hear other interviewers ask you about. So we thought we'd take up the opportunity since Platypus does a kind of self-reflection and we, you know, we, we believe that the education that we're creating is also by reflecting on our own conditions and whether or not we're missing an opportunity. Uh, thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Josh. Bye. of the Platypus Affiliated Society. To find out more about Platypus, go to platypus1917.org. If you like the podcast, then share it, rate us, and leave us a review. Bye.
Yeah, maybe killing kids is bad, but killing the soft can't say that I am sad. Yeah, there's blood from shooting the sun, the smell of smoke, and boy, do I sure feel black. Yeah, that's right, I just shot the sun, civil war will stop, but I ain't even mad. Holy shit, I just shot the sun, gotta tell you, I thought I'd never come this far. Let the revolution commence from shooting the sun, send the check out.